Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we are going to look at Ripper, a first-person, full-motion video adventure game developed and published by Take-Two Interactive in 1996 for the Microsoft DOS and Macintosh-based computer platforms. Before we get into the game, as is going to be customary, we do have a little bit of housekeeping to get out of the way up front. First of all, this is episode number two. I am excited to be back. I did receive some feedback on episode number one, and you'll hear as we continue to go through this podcast that I will continue to take feedback, continue to take comments and ideas, and keep rolling them into our podcast as we continue to evolve. So you'll hear a couple of changes from the first episode as we continue to evolve the overall state of the podcast and how we deliver our content. So I am excited to continue with this. I really do want to build a community around this podcast, and I want individuals who love retro games, retro computer games, retro technology, old school kind of things, just all of that good stuff. I want to build a community of like-minded people who can have these discussions and we can have these interactions and just exchange ideas and have a good time. So I do have an email address if you'd feel free to reach out or if you'd like to reach out. Uh, that email address is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. Feel free to give that a follow or just reach out and have a discussion. This is not about building follow accounts or stars or ratings or anything like that. I just really enjoy speaking about games and I enjoy interacting with like-minded people and even non-like-minded people. Let's just have a discussion. You disagree with me? That's fine too. So that is just a little bit of the social media kind of aspect. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, this episode, just to recap, what you will hear during any episode of this podcast is basically a multi-part kind of dissection, so to speak, of whatever game we're talking about. We'll start by talking about history and the historical context of any of the games that we're going to discuss, and then we will go into a pseudo-review of whatever game is the topic of the day. And that's really focused on the kinds of review-like topics that you would expect, albeit without any sort of real rating applied per se. It's not like we're going to grade things on a scale or anything like that, but we will take a look at graphics, sound and music. So how does it sound? How was the soundtrack? Any narrative or story elements that might be part of the game, the overall playability and controls of the game. And then finally, how does it really feel? What is the overall feel of playing any of the games we talk about? Not necessarily looking at it from, Hey, this was great in 1990, but is it still great? in 2020-something, or whenever you're listening to this podcast. So that is really what we're looking at doing here. Based on that, and based on our overall feeling of the, of the entirety, the holistic experience, we will reach a verdict and assign each game to one of several categories. So this is one of the areas where we are changing a little bit from episode one. Episode one, these categories were kind of loosely defined. We are now implementing a little bit more of a categorization or at least a title to each of these categories. And we can continue to morph this. So if there's other ideas, please let me know. But this is based on direct feedback from one of the listeners for our very first episode. So the rankings or the verdict categories that we are going to assign games to are number one. This is the top of the top list is 
an entry into the pantheon of classic gaming. And this is actually something that terminology pantheon is something that I stole from my point and click and adventure game podcast episodes where every time we would look at a game, we would rank where it sat in the pantheon of adventure games. So we're going to apply that same kind of thought process to any of the classic games we look at, albeit not in a rating based form. It's really just about, Hey, if something reaches the pantheon, that means that it is a true classic and you should play it no matter what. It's something that you deserve to experience at some point in your life. It doesn't matter that it's 30 years old. It is still great. Then next category down is for our golden oldies. So these are games that are great. They don't quite reach the stage of Pantheon. There might be some things about it that we don't really enjoy as much or that hasn't aged quite as gracefully as some of the other games in the Pantheon would be. But if you have some nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre, you're probably going to have a good time. These are good experiences. They are just not the best of the best experiences. Then we drop down to category three, which is a mediocre mention. So these are games that I can't really recommend. It's not something where I would say, hey, you have to put aside whatever you're doing and go play it. You could still have a good time. It's just not something that I would say, eh, go out of your way to play this game. And then finally, the lowest category is the footnote. In other words, it should just remain a footnote in gaming history. This is not a game that you need to go out and experience at all. I'm not going to say no, I can't control you or force you to do anything. But I'm just going to say from my perspective, these are things that you really don't need to experience. Take my word for it. Listen to the podcast, but you don't have to put yourself through the problem or through the trouble of actually going out to play. So those are the, the four verdict categories we're going to work through or assign each of the games that we talk about to. So a little bit of a change from episode one. Hopefully it adds a little bit of fun kind of perspective as we move forward. And once again, if you have other feedback, please let me know. I am definitely open to other ideas. So with that little bit of housekeeping out of the way, we are going to transition and start talking about the background and history of the full motion video, maybe classic, Ripper. Ripper was a full motion video adventure game developed and published by Take-Two Interactive back in 1996. Now this game came about as a result of the full motion video craze of the early to mid 90s, I guess a little bit into the later 90s. For anybody who may not have lived it or may not be aware of what this really is or what full motion video is in terms of game and games and context around that. I'm going to diverge a little bit and talk about full motion video games for one, because I love full motion video games. And number two, there might be individuals that don't necessarily have that historical perspective. So I just want to make sure we're starting from an even playing field an even and level playing field for what we're going to talk about. So the full motion video craze, basically think about it like this back when video games and computer games were originally created. And I'm talking the 80s, even into the early 90s a little bit, but primarily in the 80s, most of the graphics that people were exposed to were all very uh, graphical, cartoonish, pixely kinds of things. Think Super Mario Bros., where you have, there's really nothing on the screen that you would look at and say, oh yeah, that's realistic. It was all stylized graphics or all pixelated kinds of graphics, and it's great. That's, that's awesome. 
because back then graphics really weren't the thing that sold games. It was really the playability or the gameplay of a game would sell those games and people wanted to experience games and play them and, and feel that control over moving the characters or solving a puzzle or finishing a particularly difficult level. That was what was selling the games. The thing is the stories in those games, generally speaking, were not too narratively focused. And there were, of course, exceptions, especially when you start looking at things in the RPG or adventure genres. But a lot of the games released back then didn't have a whole hell of a lot of narrative-based stories. There also weren't really advanced graphics. The technology just wasn't there yet. I mean, I'm not saying that the graphics back then looked bad, because I love the look and feel of many older games like from the NES or Super NES or or just other kinds of pixel graphic based systems. I absolutely love it. But a lot of individuals back then and a lot of game developers started looking at what the next big thing was going to be. What was the evolution of those graphics going to be beyond making them prettier or adding more colors to it or whatever the case might be? What was going to be the next evolution or even revolution in gaming? And what it ended up being, or what a lot of people thought it would end up being, was the introduction of full motion video into games. Now, the term full motion video is a little bit of a catch-all for a bunch of different things. And there's a few different potential uh, definitions that we could look at. it. Full motion video simply means that it is a recorded video sequence that really doesn't allow a whole ton of interactivity because how can you control a pre-recorded video file? You really can't. But there are ways to drive and add interactivity into games that utilize full motion video. And there are a lot of different styles of full motion video that you could potentially apply in games. One of the earlier examples, not the earliest, but one of the earlier examples from back in the arcades was a game called Dragon's Lair, which was by Don Bluth, who was a famous... A former Disney animator who went on to make a bunch of animated films and created this game, Dragon's Lair. And basically the thought process there was you were basically playing a cartoon. And the way the game played out is the cartoon would play on the screen. And then at predetermined moments, you would have an opportunity to pick one of several actions. And depending on what action you picked, the laser disc, because this was all on laser discs at the time, would skip to the appropriate track and play out whatever the next video file or video sequence would be based on the action you took. So just to look at it from a a pure example from, from a game like that, let's say you're crossing a bridge and you fall in a hole. A hole opens up in a bridge and you fall down and a tentacle monster starts trying to attack you. Well, you could either try to pull yourself up, you could maybe dodge to the side, or let's say you could swing your sword. Depending on what action you choose... A different action will play out on the screen, and you may either be successful or you may fail. So let's say you swing your sword and you chop up the tentacle that's trying to attack you, and you you survive. That's great. Let's say instead you tried to pull yourself up, and instead the tentacle actually catches you before you get up out of the bridge and you die. Well, that's another possible option that could happen, all of which plays out via full motion video sequences. So you're not really controlling the animations of the character. You are controlling the actions and then the video file kind of skips around to show you what happens or what results because of those actions. So that was some of the earlier examples of full motion video were all animated. Now, they did start to introduce actually actual acted full motion video sequences, meaning Rather than looking at animation, they started to introduce actual actors in games that would portray 
various scenes within games. And once again, there were different styles for promotion video being applied in this way. Some were very similar to Dragon's Lair, which was effectively individuals and you would have a a recorded video sequence and you'd be able to pick a few different actions at different points in the video and different video sequences would then play as a result of those actions. So basically an interactive movie. Other games would introduce full motion video as cutscenes and otherwise would have normal interactivity within the game for other scenes outside of the full motion video cutscenes. And then some other games tried to integrate everything together into basically you would have these environments where full motion video actors would be superimposed into three-dimensional space or into two-dimensional space and would effectively give you a degree of interactivity but wouldn't necessarily be part of the game in that you're not controlling a video file, obviously, but you may be interacting with these full motion video actors and then they would return some interaction to you. Like if you're asking them a question, you may be able to pick the question from a drop-down list or from a list of possible questions, the full motion video actor or character in the game would then respond via video. So more interactivity than just plain interactive movie where you would pick different actions and something would play out, but you would still have that kind of actor integration into the game. And there are probably other examples as well. But those are some of the primary examples for full motion video games. And I will tell you that from my perspective, I thought full motion video was going to be the thing in gaming. I loved the concept moving from from pixel-based graphics into more of the full motion video real person kind of views. I thought this was going to be the thing that would take everything into the future. I thought this was the future of gaming. I really loved the fact that I was controlling real people. It just felt it felt really really cool to me at the time and I absolutely loved full motion video games. Not everybody shared that opinion, and there were actually quite a few people, the the majority actually, thought that full motion video was not the thing to do or not the thing to use in video games because, generally speaking, interactivity is much lower in full motion video games than what you would see in some more traditional kinds of titles. And like we talked about, that's not a universal rule, but it is something that was fairly common you would have less interactive elements with full motion video games some games really did a good job of integrating all the full motion video in there others basically just looked at this as a as the new craze and tried to go hollywood with all of the games they were creating so it really was a crapshoot whether you would get a gem of a full motion video game like what i would consider the tex murphy series with chris jones portraying tex murphy and other other actors portraying other characters or you might get a game like harvester which had a lot of full motion video but was so incredibly campy that i can't actually recommend anybody play it i mean i guess it it sometimes veers into so bad it's good territory but it's kind of not in any event a lot of times full motion videos as well or full motion video games as well the acting would be generally subpar because there weren't really Hollywood actors that were joining up or signing up to do these full motion video games. Hollywood actors were acting in Hollywood movies. So a lot of the times when you would see actors in these games, they would be developers or designers behind the games that would just act out roles because that was all they had. Now, we did start to see a little bit of a shift there. And actually, the game we're going to be talking about today, Ripper, is probably one of the biggest Hollywood-like productions 
that full motion video gaming has seen because there were just so many stars uh, in the game. They really tried to do something different, but a lot of the full motion video games from the time were, were not that great from an acting perspective. Although I will say they definitely, at least for me, have a certain degree of charm. And I, like I said, I love full motion video games. We could talk about full motion video games for hours just because it's, that's just how much I, I enjoy them. But that is not going to be the pure focus of this particular podcast episode. I just wanted everybody to have a little bit of context before we start talking about Ripper and its history, which really starts with Take-Two Interactive, which is a company that was founded in 1993 by a man named Ryan Brandt, who was actually the son of a millionaire media executive named Peter Brandt. Now, this is a little interesting in that Ryan became the CEO of this company at the age of 21, which is a pretty darn young age to be the CEO of, of anything. I mean, back when I was 21, I was still graduating college, and we have this, this guy who's becoming the CEO of Take-Two Interactive, uh, which, now granted, this was very early stages of, of the company, but I would imagine most people have some understanding or some knowledge of Take-Two Interactive. This, right now, we're talking around early 90s. So this is before Take-Two became a gigantic corporation. In fact, today, it is the third largest publicly traded game company in the Americas behind Activision Blizzard, which was just recently or is in the process of getting acquired by Microsoft, and Electronic Arts, which everybody loves to hate anyway. uh, So... At the time, though, Take-Two was a brand new company, and uh, its new CEO, or its young CEO, had gotten some investments from both family. Like we said, his father was a a millionaire media executive, so got some funding from him, and Peter Brandt actually maintained or or remained a a key or majority shareholder for quite some time into the company's overall evolution. Um, But Ryan Brandt also received some private investments, and really what he believed was that technology companies of the time expected somebody younger to be in roles of leadership. He did not believe that that the tech companies were really looking for somebody who was quote-unquote older. He thought that the younger the person would be, the more respected they would be within the tech field. So the fact that he was such a young CEO really didn't dissuade him. He just figured this is the this is the name of the game and this will actually garner favor as he continues to look for capital for investments or just continues to move the company forward. Now, Take-Two, even from an early age, was pretty diverse early on. And, and by diverse in this context, I mean a lot of times when you look at these gaming companies, you have developers or publishers, a publisher is somebody who takes a game that somebody's developed and actually goes through all of the process to burn the discs or create the discs, create the the media that goes along with it, any of the pack-in items from a box perspective, the actual box, as well as marketing and distribution to retail outlets. And developers are the people that are actually creating the games. They're focused on creating the code and and getting all of the story down and filming if they're doing full motion video, whatever else. They're basically responsible for the software product. The publisher is really responsible for the distribution. Take-Two was both a publisher and a developer from its inception. Now, they were known for a couple of primary releases at this point. Shortly after the company was formed, actually within a year of its formation, 
uh, Take-Two did release a couple games. One was called Star Crusader. That was a space combat sim released in 1994. It was kind of like Take-Two's version of a Wing Commander game crossed with X-Wing, if you guys know know those games. Effectively, some space combat kinds of, uh, kinds of games out there. Star Crusader was Take-Two's answer to that, albeit without any full motion video cinematics at the time. Wing Commander 3 was actually uh, a pretty well-known full motion video title that uh, interspersed full motion video cutscenes with real, well, with interactive, I'll say, space combat missions. That actually got some renown for having a good amount of Hollywood talent in there as well. Most predominantly Mark Hamill, as well as Malcolm McDowell were both in the Wing Commander games. I'm actually not sure if Malcolm McDowell was in Wing Commander 3. I know he was in Wing Commander 4, but maybe not 3. Anyway, Star Crusader was Take-Two's answer to that kind of space combat game. And then their second game that they primarily developed was called Hell, a cyberpunk thriller. Now, this was an adventure game and was the first time that Take-Two brought in Hollywood-level talent to dabble in full motion video. In this case, they had brought in the likes of Dennis Hopper, Grace Jones, and Stephanie Seymour, who interestingly would eventually marry Peter Brandt and become Ryan Brandt's stepmother. Now, these people weren't necessarily A-list talent per se, but they were Hollywood talent. These are individuals that you would see either on the silver screen or the golden screen, and they would definitely be individuals that would be recognizable to more than just the gaming population. Dennis Hopper, probably the most prominent of the actors that were that were included in the game. He only had a speaking part in that. Not everybody was doing full motion video sequences out of the actors they had chosen, but they did actually, or Take-Two did actually utilize a good amount of the CD-ROM technology at the time to both record voices from Hollywood actors as well as produce some full motion video sequences of these actors. Now, Hell was okay. It received an okay amount of positive critical reception it sold well for the time. It sold around 300,000 units, and it was successful enough that Take-Two decided to pursue an even grander full motion video Hollywood experiment. That experiment would become Ripper. Now, Ripper was meant to be the evolution of all full motion video that came before it. This was supposed to be the harbinger for the new era of computer gaming entertainment, which was the cross-section or the intersection of Hollywood with interactive games. And the goal here was to go away from what most other full-motion video games had been doing and really bring in top-flight A-list actors to portray the characters in the game. And some of the actors that they included, and this is by all means not an all-inclusive list, but just listen to some of these names. There was Karen Allen, who many people may recognize at a minimum from Raiders of the Lost Ark and the other Indiana Jones film that nobody wants to talk about. Burgess Meredith, who most famously probably played Mick, Mick or Mickey in the Rocky series. John Rice Davies, who at the time, I'm not sure what his biggest role was at the time, but I know he did eventually become Gimli in Lord of the Rings. Paul Giamatti, who was relatively unknown at this time, but has gone on to make a ton of different films and basically became a really strong character actor in Hollywood. And then one of the bigger names, if not the biggest name in the film or in the, in the game, was Christopher Walken. 
And we'll talk about Christopher Walken's acting performance in this game a little bit later. But suffice it to say, everything you know about Christopher Walken, every movie, every scene you've seen him play in, imagine you took that, you took all those scenes, you combined them into one, and then you cranked up the Christopher Walkenness of the overall scene to 11, and then you told him to be a little bit more crazy. And that is what we see in Ripper. And I can't wait to talk about the specific performance that he gave because it is so, so Christopher Walken. It's great. Anyway, the thought behind this game was, let's create a true interactive movie with Hollywood production values. They had a ton of budget and they spent a good portion, if not, I think it was a quarter of the budget that they spent on just the cast, which was almost unheard of, if not unheard of at this time, because still games at this point were meant to be developed experiences. And most of the budgets for games were spent on the actual development of the game and not necessarily the cast. This was a deviation from that general standard to do that though. And to create a true interactive movie that also included interactive elements, they didn't want to just have the type of full motion video experience where video files played, you picked a couple of actions and then other video files played. They wanted to create a true adventure game experience. So the developers created a brand new engine for the game that would allow uh, the players to span and look at 3D environments and interact with those 3D environments. In those environments would be puzzles and some inventory-based activities or inventory-based puzzles along with inventory management and also allow for the integration of full motion video sequences. For anybody who's unaware, just not to get too geeky with things, but a game engine is basically the foundational thing that lets every, every option or every object and every action within a game happen. So think of it like this. You might have a bunch of animations. You might have a bunch of full motion video files. You might have a bunch of different objects or scenes or whatever. The game engine is how the player gets to interact with the game. And the game engine basically makes everything run and come together from a gaming experience. Without the engine, all you have is a collection of files. The engine is basically what the definition of an engine is. It's what makes everything go. So that is really the core of a game. And these developers at Take-Two Interactive created a brand new 3D engine for use with Ripper. So with the engine created, all of the attention turned to the video production. And within the, the context of Ripper, the script was absolutely massive. Um, so the stats I read here were that the general, generally speaking, a Hollywood film has around 120 pages in a traditional script. Ripper was almost triple the size. It was over 350 pages long. And the reason for that, first of all, highly ambitious, especially because when you consider this game was basically taking A-list or mostly A-list Hollywood talent and trying to create an A-list Hollywood experience, albeit interactive. But beyond the ambition, this was going to be a game that would have multiple endings and paths through the game. And basically, at the end of the day, one of four different suspects would be pseudo-randomly chosen, which created a need for individuals to have to play through the game multiple times if you wanted to see every aspect of the game or every potential storyline that could play out. So it integrated replayability right away, but to do that required additional script and additional scenes and dialogue and everything else because they needed to be, each of the paths needed to be different enough 
so that you would be able to have a different experience every time you played the game. Now, I did read a little bit about the process of recording all of the Hollywood actors, and something that I found funny, and a little bit disappointing, at least from my standpoint, is generally speaking, most of the actors didn't really get the whole computer technology thing. I can't hold that against them because at the time, the whole computer gaming, computer technology kind of domain was still fairly limited. This wasn't something, computers still weren't absolutely pervasive across the world at this point. It was still very niche as far as who would be, who would even own a computer at this point, but also what kinds of things you could do with a computer. So when when you would talk to the different Hollywood actors, and obviously I didn't talk to any of the actors from the game, but if you read some of the interviews, it was pretty apparent, and based on other comments that other people have made, it was pretty apparent that the actors didn't really understand what they were doing in the game. Like, they, they got it. They were filming in front of a green screen or a blue screen or whatever, but they didn't have any of that technical knowledge to understand how they would even run a game. Burgess Meredith, in particular, said hey, I did this thing, I don't even know, I don't even have an idea of how I would view my performance because I, he's, he wasn't a game player, and I get it. Now, as far as recording the actual actors in the game, most of them used cue cards, and I did read something where uh, it was often compared to how they, how they kind of record Saturday Night Live, where the actors weren't necessarily memorizing scripts, but they would just read off of cue cards for whatever scene they were doing, and just kind of work it like that, which I think is probably what led a little bit to the Christopher Walkenness of Christopher Walken's performance, because he definitely seemed like a Saturday Night Live skit a little bit when you uh, take a look at how he performed in the game. So they did film all of the actors in front of a blue screen, which would basically allow them, allow the developers to integrate those video sequences into whatever 3D world or 3D environment they had created within the game engine. Now, chroma keying is a technology that's been around for a while, and you can think of it as effectively removing the background from a video image. So a lot of times to do that, people will perform or be recorded in front of either a green screen or a blue screen or some other screen color, and then they would have that background removed and replaced with a different background inside of a computer. One funny story here related to the filming in front of the blue screen for this particular game is a Burgess Meredith who played one of the characters in the game had shown up for the first day of filming and he was wearing blue rimmed glasses. Now the way chroma key works is it doesn't know what's a background color versus what's a color that should be shown in the foreground. It just knows you tell it to remove the color blue and it will make blue effectively invisible and it will replace it with whatever you want to replace it with. Now if they're using a blue screen, which is what they did use for Ripper, and somebody is wearing something that's blue, that part of their body will effectively disappear and be replaced with the background behind it. So Burgess Meredith showing up with blue-rimmed glasses was actually pretty much a showstopper because that basically meant that uh, he would be removed or his the frames and the area around his face would be removed and would have background showing through, which would create not a great-looking picture, certainly. Definitely not a professional-looking picture. So luckily, they were able to find other frames for his glasses or glasses with a different frame that he was able to use for filming the scenes. But if not, that would have been a very interesting photo shoot or video shoot to have included in the game. 
Uh, I don't know if they have any footage that exists from back then that would show that. I think it'd be kind of funny to see, but I don't know that they have that available. Anyway, once all was said and done, the fact that they had so much video and they were trying to record so much dialogue from this massive script would balloon the game to include six CDs, which was at the time one of the largest games to ever be released. Now, CD technology had been really coming to the forefront from the early 90s, and the game that put it on the map, one of two games really put it put CD-ROM technology on the map. One was Myst, which was a, a first-person interactive adventure game that also had full motion video sequences, interestingly. Myst basically sold CD-ROM technology. Seventh Guest was another first-person full motion video-esque adventure game that also sold a ton of CD-ROMs because of the technology there. So those two games from the earlier 90s were basically what caused CD-ROM technology itself to become much more of a mainstream kind of thing. By the time we get to Ripper and the size of the of the full motion video files and just the way that they had so much story or so much dialogue and so many scenes to to tell, it meant that the game was just too big for one CD and actually had to ship on six CDs. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the pitfalls associated with multiple CD games when we get into the review section of the discussion. But gigantic game in 1996 standards. And they really did try to capture the feeling of a Hollywood film. Now, this was a little notorious in that the uh, now don't don't think that I'm a prude or anything like this because I'm not. But I also want to keep this podcast clean. Ripper apparently was the first game that utilized the F word, so to speak. And I know we're all adults or most of us are adults here, but I, I really just don't want to be too explicit on the podcast. So the first time in a game from le- least what I could tell that the F word was used was in Ripper, which is kind of cool. I mean, I guess it's a little, little bit of notoriety that comes along with the game. And by the way, it wasn't just used one time. They really, they really went for broke. On on that, it was kind of interesting. It was definitely, if I had played this in 1996, I owned it in 1996, but I didn't play it back then when I was, uh, when I was a teenager. But if I had, I would have been like, wow, this this is, this is so adult. I feel, I feel so, so much like this is, this is what grownups must do. And, um, you know, I was a teenager. Don't listen to me, but it was a little bit of little bit notorious for having that be one of its claims to fame. The Ripper did release in February of 1996, and it sold really well, at least early on. It sold 150,000 copies in the first week of release, which basically made it Take-Two's biggest game to date. It drove over a quarter of the company's revenue for all of 1996. Over a quarter of the revenue came just from Ripper. Now, the unfortunate thing was, that after the initial hype died down, the sales decreased dramatically. So much so that within a year of its release, it was basically unavailable or very, very scarcely available on store shelves. So unfortunately, Ripper didn't really have a long life. And it's funny that today, a lot of times you read articles and Ripper is called a forgotten adventure game. I don't know how forgotten it is. I always knew about it. This was one that was always on my radar. Now, maybe that's because I really enjoy full motion video games. And as a result, Ripper has always been something that's been in my 
purview or in my in my sphere of knowledge because of because of the fact that I really enjoy the genre. But a lot of people don't even know this existed or didn't know it existed before YouTube started becoming really popular and people started roasting Christopher Walken's performance in Ripper, which once again is just pure gold. But it's just really not as well known today as what I would have expected, which was a little surprising to me. Now, the fact that Ripper didn't perform quite as well as far as long-term kind of sales didn't really dissuade Take-Two Interactive. They would actually go on to make a third full-motion video game called Black Dahlia, which was another uh, full-motion video Hollywood-style adventure game production. I believe they didn't use quite as much or quite as many Hollywood-level talent there. They definitely had some Hollywood actors in there, but not nearly as much as what they had in Ripper. Unfortunately for Take-Two, Black Dahlia didn't really set the world on fire either. It was uh, it was once again an interesting experience, but wasn't something that was that was going to really be the uh, the next stage or the next evolution of gaming. Now there was something I did read about Take-Two, and especially in the early goings in these these times around the 90s and even into the early early 2000s going on. There were a lot of stories about some mismanagement going on, especially related to Ryan Brandt. There was one story about him not paying people appropriately for any of the work that they performed, and eventually, later on in the early 2000s, he'd get into some pretty serious financial trouble with the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission, or SEC, over what was effectively fraudulent accounting practices. He ended up having to pay millions of dollars in fines in order to avoid prison time for for what he had done as a result, or as it related to Take-Two Interactive. Unfortunately, Brant did pass away at the age of 49 due to cardiac arrest. And I will say, it doesn't appear that he was that great of a person. Just based on what I've read, I obviously don't know. I don't have a firsthand account of it, but based on what I read, he didn't sound like the best person to know. But it's undeniable that he set in motion a company that would become a behemoth in the gaming world. Ripper and the other Hollywood experiments that Take-Two worked through, they may not be remembered fondly today, or in some cases not remembered at all, but nobody can underestimate the legacy that Brandt and the early Take-Two interactive company created by virtue of just being founded and, and by progressing in the gaming industry. So you might ask, what happened to Take-Two? Spoiler alert, and I already told this or mentioned this earlier, it became one of the most successful gaming companies in the world. And this was unplanned, but a little interesting, at least to me. Take-Two owns Rockstar North. Coincidentally, that was the company that DMA Design, or one that was the company that DMA Design, as well as some other acquisitions, evolved into and DMA Design, for anybody who didn't listen to episode one, is the company or the development company that developed Lemmings. So I did not plan that connection between episode one and episode two, but I did find it interesting that that connection existed regardless. So it's pretty obvious that Take-Two moved past its early full motion video trials and experiments to create something that would certainly stand the test of time and prove that as a company, it was a force to be reckoned with. Full motion video itself, like I said, I love full motion video, but it died down a lot. After the mid-90s, full motion video became 
almost a dirty word and nobody really wanted to touch it. There were still some full motion video titles out there, but it really never reached the pinnacle that everybody thought it would. And it didn't really set the world on fire the way everybody expected. I will say though, that full motion video is experiencing a little bit of a revival right now. It, it kind of started to revive itself back in within over the last, I'll say 10 years or so full motion video started to started to experience a little bit more focus. And nowadays with the technology we have readily available just on our phones with HD and even 4k video capabilities in our pockets, that really opens up the aperture for the potential full motion video experiences to continue to be made. And plus it also reduces the barrier of entry for some gaming experiences because full motion video doesn't require quite as much interactivity, generally speaking, So it does open up the doors for more amateur developers and even some professional developers to release more titles, which for me is something I'm incredibly excited about. We are now going to transition to our review of Ripper. So sit back, relax, listen to one of the nondescript kind of ambient soundtrack song thingies that Ripper basically used throughout the whole game. And we will be right back. So what exactly was Ripper? We know it was developed by Take-Two Interactive, but Ripper itself was a first-person full-motion video adventure game. So this was kind of like, I mentioned Myst before. This was kind of like Myst in that you were portraying or controlling a character that had a first-person view into the world, so you couldn't see your character. Basically, everything you saw was the world through the eyes of your character. And the way the game worked is you would navigate 3D environments via a point-and-click interface. And there really wasn't a whole heck of a lot of interactivity beyond clicking hotspots on the screen in order to move to other screens or clicking certain objects that would trigger certain things to happen. So a typical scene would be you entering a room, and then you might click forward, which would move you forward, or left or right, which would turn you left or right. You may have a character on the screen that you could talk to, in which case, if you could, you could click on that character, and then there'd be a number of questions on the screen that you could ask. You'd go through the question list, and the characters would answer whatever questions you ask and advance the story along. So that was kind of the crux of the game. That's basically the way it worked, and that's the general gaming loop, was you explored these environments, you went through some full-motion video sequences with some of the characters and actors in the game, You'd question them, you'd find out additional information, you might have a combat experience or two, which we'll talk about some of the combat in the game in a little bit, Um, but that was basically the game. And what I do like to do is I like to take a look at the back of the box, because when we used to pick these games up, now Ripper's a little bit later, so there was a little bit more published about it than maybe what we might have seen with Lemmings, but... When we would pick these games up when when they first released, a lot of times all you could go off of is what was written on the box to determine if it was something you wanted to buy or not. So let's look at the back of the box for Ripper and see how it portrays itself. It reads, Jack's back. In 2040, a vicious serial killer stalks the mean streets of New York, eviscerating his victims and vanishing without a trace. The police are baffled, the city paralyzed with fear. 
only you, as crime reporter Jack Quinlan can crack the case. Over three hours of full-screen, full-motion video across six CDs. Four different endings allow for extensive replayability. State-of-the-art special effects provide unparalleled realism. Featuring the music of of Blue Oyster Cult, high-resolution graphics, and a beautifully rendered first-person 3D world bring the adventure to life. Over 35 interactive puzzles and combat sequences. Yeah, combat. To challenge every hardcore gamer. Also starring Jimmy Walker, Tawny Welch, David Patrick Kelly, and Ossie Davis. That was the back of the box for for Ripper. And, you know, just based on looking at the back of the box, it sounds like an interesting experience. It was certainly interesting enough for me to buy it back in the uh, mid-90s. So, what are we going to do here? We're going to take a look at a few different categories, like we mentioned before. We're going to look at the graphics. How did the game look? How did the game's graphics age? How was the sound and music for the game? How was the narrative and or story to, for games that do actually have a narrative and or story? And how did it feel? How did it feel to play? What was the playability like? What were the controls like? And then overall, what was the experience in playing the game? Did we like it? Was it fun? Was it sad? Was it interesting? Maybe none of the above, maybe all of the above. We'll talk through it. But first, we are going to talk about the graphics. And overall, I would have to say, not too bad. Uh, Graphics here for Ripper were acceptable, I'll say. They weren't great. It was definitely, some of the environments looked muddy when you navigate around them. And and I did play on period-appropriate hardware, but... Regardless, the environments just didn't really look all that great, especially in comparison to what we have today. But even independent of that, the 3D world, it looked all right. It was a little ho-hum to me. I will say, though, the full motion video sequences were pretty darn high quality. You could definitely get the feel that they were going for a Hollywood style with the full motion video sequences, and I think they achieved that. I think they really did get that Hollywood style that you would expect the acting for the most part. And I know we're talking graphics now, but I'll talk a little bit about the acting here. The acting was part of the overall presentation and there was some good acting in the game. I thought that, uh, John Rice Davies was very good. Uh, Paul Giamatti did a pretty good job with his role. Karen Allen wasn't the most believable as a scientist super, uh, doctor, I guess, super smart doctor doing some science kind of stuff. It wasn't the most believable character in the world, but I thought she did a fine job acting. There were a couple of of performances that were a little bit less so. Burgess Meredith was kind of over the top with his role. Unfortunately, this was his very last role before he passed away, so he'll definitely be remembered from that perspective related to this, but wasn't his best acting role. But the one... The only that we have to speak about is Christopher Walken. Now, there has been a lot talked about Christopher Walken's performance in this game. And the only thing I could say is if you haven't played it, you don't, if you haven't played it and you want to play it, that's fine. Go for it. But at a minimum, take a look on YouTube. Just do a search on YouTube for Christopher Walken Ripper, and you will see a level of overacting that I didn't think was possible. I, I, I mean, 
I always fancied myself a little bit of a, of an actor or at a minimum, I love being on the stage. I don't know if you call me an actor or not, but I do enjoy being on the stage and having attention on me. And I can only imagine that Christopher Walken's performance in this game is what I probably look like to people that are not me because he basically chewed the scenery every single chance he got. He had a level of dedication to the, to the role. I mean, he, he definitely jumped in with both feet, but boy, he, uh, he was, I don't even know the best way to describe it. You just have to see it and listen to some of the performance and some of the, some of the lines that he had to deliver and he delivered them as himself are just plain comedic gold. I've got to give you one of them because I think it is just absolutely hilarious. And the way he delivers it is just absurdly great. It's, it's just, I don't even, I here, here's what he said. This is one of the scenes in the game. So Walken says, just because you two played tiddlywinks in your birthday suit doesn't mean I'm going to open police files for you. And of course this you know, sounds way better in Christopher Walken ease, but seriously, just go watch some of those clips. It, it's, it's great. It is truly great in a so bad it's good kind of way. So anyway, graphics, not so bad, not so great, kind of middle of the road. Sound and music, there, I guess there was some, it was completely forgettable. The music was effectively all ambient background tracks, really wasn't anything to write home about. I guess the biggest claim to fame from a musical perspective is the fact that they had licensed Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper, which is a fairly popular song, as the theme song for the game, but it felt really random. It was literally the only song that was a a quote-unquote real song other than some of the background tracks just being ambient noise or ambient notes that just standard background tracks for a game. So the fact that Blue Oyster Cult actually licensed their uh, music or at least their, their one song for the game. Okay. Like, I guess that's cool. It didn't really, it was, it just fell out of place because the other sound and music in the game just wasn't up to par. It just didn't have the same, same quality. So it just felt like it was a random assignment or a random selection to be included in the game, just to try to get a little bit more Hollywood centric or Hollywood esque kind of stuff into it. And, not, not that that was a bad idea, I guess, but it really didn't wow me. And by the way, the uh, the final puzzle in the game. So the, there's two times where you hear Don't Fear the Reaper. One is at the very beginning of the game for the introductory sequence. And then the other is during the end puzzle of the game where there are actually specific... They use the song to call out or to give you clues about how to solve the final puzzle in the game. And this is one of those things where my jaw hit the floor. Now, I told you before that I am a relatively easy grader. But one thing that I do really, really, really have a pet peeve about is when there are totally nonsensical or just random puzzles in adventure games, or any kind of games, really. But in particular, adventure games seem to have this problem more times than some other genres. And basically what I mean there is a lot of times a good adventure game 
will have puzzles that are well integrated into the environment or well integrated into the overall story. You're not just going to solve a puzzle for the sake of solving a puzzle. You're going to solve a puzzle because it's it makes sense within the storyline that you're trying to to listen to or that you're trying to play out. And those puzzles that are well built or built into the overall story and game world and make sense makes for a great adventure game. Where adventure games sometimes fall flat is where they look at puzzles as just something to be included because adventure games have puzzles and not puzzles designed to fit very nicely and neatly into the game world itself. Having a puzzle based on a song that only played during the introductory sequence up to that point and had no bearing on the rest of the game at all, at least that I could tell. Maybe I missed something. If I did, let me know. But it had no bearing on the game whatsoever, yet it was the main clue factor for the final puzzle in the game. And oh, by the way, when I played the game, the song cut out like 30 seconds in. So that wasn't great. So I don't know. It just didn't feel it didn't feel good to me. This didn't give me that warm and fuzzy feeling that often happens when you when you tackle a really good puzzle in a game. It just kind of missed it. It missed the mark for me. So going on to narrative and story, this is actually one where I really I enjoyed the story of the game. So not to go into too much detail because I don't want to give away a ton of spoilers, but just to break it down a little bit. Basically, you play as a reporter in the game. You play this reporter and you've been following and you've been reporting on a case where there's somebody that is effectively reenacting to a degree or has branded themselves as Jack the Ripper 2.0. The the story takes place in the future, in 2040. It's kind of a cyberpunk uh, kind of stylized world. And basically what's happening is this this ripper or this this killer is basically going around and killing people they all have a connection by the way everybody that's getting that's getting murdered all has a connection which gets revealed during the game you play a reporter that the ripper has been in contact with and very early on something happens and your girlfriend gets attacked by the ripper and ends up in a coma and then you have to spend the rest of the game trying to figure out who the Ripper is and basically save your girlfriend's life. And there's a lot of stuff that happens along the way, and and there is there's actually a good amount of story here. And the story itself, trying to figure out who the Ripper is and trying to determine what all those different twists are and how the story will play out, is actually really interesting to me. And there's a lot of different locations or at least a good amount of locations that play out or that you can potentially visit as you work to solve the mystery. And then probably the best part of the story is the fact that there is or there are one of four potential outcomes for the game. Basically, there are four different individuals who could potentially be the Ripper in any given playthrough. And depending on who the game selects from that random kind of choice, it affects how the game plays out, different scenes play, different dialogues will play, different puzzles might become available. So it does increase the replayability, and I, I enjoy that. Now, the unfortunate thing is that each of the four endings 
are really not all that different. The endings themselves are not all that different. The the way to get to the ending does diverge, but it only diverges in the third act. There are three acts in the overall game, and only the third act will diverge. Basically, the first two acts are, I believe, identical, regardless of who ends up being the Ripper. And then the third act is where the game starts to do different things based on what path you might be on or, or which random character was chosen as the Ripper for that particular playthrough. Regardless, I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed the narrative. I thought it was very interesting throughout pretty much the entire game. I wanted to see how it played out. So from a story perspective, I thought it was it was actually a really good experience, and I would recommend anybody to enjoy the story. Unfortunately, when we start talking about the playability and the controls, things start to fall apart a little bit for me. The game itself was playable. So from a control perspective, the game worked mostly. I did have a little bit of an issue getting Ripper working on vintage hardware. I have I have a few different older machines that I use for a lot of these games. And I have a pure DOS-based machine that is a 486DX4 100 megahertz machine with 36 megabytes of RAM and the traditional kinds of DOS stuff you would expect. I also have a Pentium 200 megahertz with MMX, and then I have some some later kind of Pentium 3 and Pentium 4 machines, and then beyond that, Core 2 Duo, and then we start getting into more modern kinds of stuff. But my intention with this game was to play it on either my Windows 95 or Windows 98 machines, which would be the Pentium 200 megahertz or a Pentium 3 533 megahertz, I think. 500 megahertz, somewhere around there, respectively. And neither of those worked. Now, I don't know if that was because Ripper, at least the version of Ripper that I own, doesn't play nicely with DOS versions that are Windows-based DOS versions. And by that, I mean, once Windows 95 and 98 came along, they were not, DOS wasn't the operating system per se. Windows was the operating system and they still had a DOS environment, not just internal to Windows itself, but all, but you could also boot directly into DOS, but it wasn't the same operating system level stuff or operating system level shell, I guess, in the in the traditional computing kind of sense as what you had before Windows 95. Windows 3.1 and before were just software programs that ran on top of DOS, which was the overall operating system for the computer. So when I tried to run Ripper on both Windows 95 and Windows 98 machines, even in pure DOS mode, it wouldn't run properly. The video got all garbled and it wouldn't even wouldn't even let me play the game really. It might have been a configuration setting on my end that I needed to tweak, but I didn't spend too much time on that because I knew I had a pure DOS machine. I installed it on that and played it on that pure DOS machine and everything went swimmingly. So I can't really complain, but it was something interesting that I noticed as I was trying to get the game set up and running for the purposes of actually playing it. Now, playing the game itself, interactivity, it was okay. I mean, it was what you would expect from a traditional first-person kind of adventure game. There are some things I want to call out, though, that that did provide certain frustration for going through the game. One, navigating the environment. So very traditional kinds of click near the top of the screen or forward to move forward, click to the left to turn left, click right to turn right, all that kind of stuff. The same kind of thing you would see in any first-person adventure game. But the problem here is that every time you try to navigate a scene, 
the animation for moving through that scene would have to play. And the, the environments weren't gigantic, but they were big enough. And especially when you were trying to walk around and potentially backtrack, because if you're playing without a walkthrough, you may not know what the next step is. So you have to try different things and you're navigating these places and you're going up and down and up elevators and down hallways and in rooms and things like that. Eventually the animations get old. They looked fine. The animations looked fine and I can see why they put it in there because it does add a smoothness to the overall experience but it started to become more cumbersome than it was worth because those animations just, they just played every single time you navigated the environment. And it, it added more time to the game that I really wanted to have with the story. I wanted to learn more about the story quicker. And it, it basically made me slow down a little bit because those animations were just, they, they just played constantly when you moved around. I know a lot of games do that. But with this one, the animations were a little slow, too, so it made the whole experience just feel a little bit more clunky than what I would otherwise have uh, have enjoyed. Now, the other aspect here from a playability perspective, in many first-person adventure games, puzzles are a big part of the game. And with Ripper, same exact thing. Puzzles played a huge part in the overall game. And I will I will be totally honest and say, I was not a fan of the puzzles to start when I was playing the game. In Act 1, the puzzles felt so arbitrary and just randomly thrown in there just to have puzzles. There's one scene or there's one there's one section of puzzles where you basically have to solve three different puzzles in this in this guy's apartment or house or or whatever and in order to solve those three puzzles you have to go through and you have to figure out what the puzzles are trying to tell you and you have to figure out what the what the solution would be and that's fine that's typical but it was very random one of the puzzles was literally like moving a marble around if i remember correctly it was a a marble or, or something that was moving around and you had to get it from from point a to point b almost in a maze kind of thing and that's just is totally random there was no real story reason why that kind of puzzle would be there. Some of the other puzzles were better integrated into the game, but you could almost think of the puzzles in a lot of the game as kind of like escape room puzzles, except not really integrated into the story. Like no, no reason or rationale behind why a certain puzzle would appear in a certain spot. So at the beginning, that first act, I was really unimpressed with the puzzles. It did not feel great. It was not... It was not making me happy. By the time Act 2 rolled around, though, and I don't know if this is just something that as you start getting used to the game and you start understanding the language of what the game developers are trying to tell you or trying to use, I did start to enjoy the puzzles more as the game went forward. I think part of that was a lot of the puzzles were much better integrated into the overall game world and made more sense within the game world. There were still some really weird puzzles out there. Like there was one puzzle later on in the game where you had to figure out the right electroshock therapy to make a monkey tell you verbally a clue. And that's a little weird. I mean, it was integrated into the game world, but it was also a lot of trial and error without a whole heck of a lot of direction as far as being able to to discern the answer without just doing trial and error. So the puzzles really weren't my thing. I, I was it was okay. Some puzzles were better than others. Some puzzles were downright not good, at least in my opinion. 
they were not that great, but I, I didn't, I didn't really feel it. I wasn't feeling it. The, the puzzles though, that wasn't the biggest issue. One of the biggest issues, and this probably isn't an issue if you're playing the game on DOSBox or some form of emulation, but one of the biggest issues from my standpoint was the sheer amount of disc swapping that could be possible that when you play this game and when you play, just play normally without any sort of walkthrough. So I did play the game without a walkthrough. I wanted to experience the game the way I would have experienced it back in 1996. And in doing so, well, first, before I talk about that, each, the game is split up into three acts. Each act encompasses two CDs. So at any point in time, the most disc swapping you will ever do is between two CDs, like disc one, disc two, disc three, disc four, disc five, disc six. That being said, because of the way the game is designed, it's fairly open-ended with where you can go. It's both open-ended and not, actually, and I'll talk about that in a second. But it's fairly open-ended in where you can go. You can go to any location that's been unlocked for you, and that may be right, that may be wrong. And because the game isn't always straightforward with where the next step could be, a lot of times you will revert to trial and error or the traditional kind of adventure game approach where, well, there's a thing here, I'm going to try to do this thing with that thing to see if something happens. Um, a lot of adventure games have that happen with inventory puzzles. This game in particular had it happen with visiting locations where you might not be sure what exactly that next step is. So you revisit every single location on the map just to try to find what that what the next trigger will be that allows you to progress in the game. And that's all well and good. But... The if you are playing the game without a walkthrough and you are getting to certain situations where you don't know what you need to do or who you need to talk to to advance the story or advance the game, you will experience an amount of disc swapping potentially that will make you want to pull your hair out. There is just so much swapping in the game. And I understand why the full motion video sequences were really large. The environments probably took up a good amount of space too with the 3d renders that they used it, it was an ambitious title but the disc swapping especially if i'm looking at it from the perspective of a modern day view of this game disc swapping is one of those things that is an immediate detractor to the overall feel and gaming experience that you get by playing a game it is almost an immediate friction that gets added whenever you have a situation that you need to swap discs. And when you have to swap it multiple times, literally moving from one location to another, to another, to another, you may have to swap discs four times because you didn't think it through well. And you're just trying different things and, and you, you click on different locations that are all located on different discs and you just keep swapping and swapping and swapping. And I know that was life back in the mid nineties. I lived it. I lived it with the multiple CD games where you'd have to do some swapping, but a lot of games were more intelligent about how they did it and how they introduced swapping. They would have just enough uh, copied, just enough content copied across CDs that would make it a lot less cumbersome to play and a lot more streamlined for the end user. Ripper did that to a degree and that each act was two discs only, but it really didn't decrease the amount of swapping that was potentially necessary as you play through the game. So eh, that really, really took a, away from the overall experience from my perspective. It just, it really detracted 
from how the how the overall game felt. So beyond the puzzles, which were sometimes nonsensical, sometimes random, sometimes okay, beyond navigating the environments, and the environments, like we talked about with graphics, eh, they were a little muddy. Full motion video sequence is fine. The environments were okay-ish. The other aspect of this game, which I did not expect to have in a first-person adventure title, was combat. And the combat can best be described as not good because it wasn't good. Basically, there's different scenes in the game or different, different times in the game where you're exploring cyberspace. And in certain areas of cyberspace, there are protections that are in place. And those protections need to be defeated in combat. And there's different forms of combat that the game throws at you. There are some sequences that are basically uh, on-rails shooters where you move through almost like a a Hogan's Alley kind of thing and different things pop up. They might be good guys. They might be bad guys. You have to shoot the bad guys, not shoot the good guys and get a high score at the end in order to pass the test. There might be other scenes where there's a big monster that you have to shoot in a very specific spot while at the same time, if they try to shoot you, you bring your shields up in order to prevent you from taking damage and then you damage the monster when he's not shooting at you. And there's some other kinds of things like that as well. But the combat here was so, it was both basic as well as irritating, (laughs) which is a horrible combination to be both basic and irritating at the same time. So much so that it, it once again, when I got to a combat area, it was, it was one of those times where, yes, it was a good change of pace. I enjoyed the fact that there was a little bit of a change and deviation from the traditional gaming kind of stuff that had been in the game up to that point, but it wasn't good enough to really justify its existence. I, I conceptually get what they were trying to do and what they were going for with having the combat be based on defeating the protections that might be around certain areas of cyberspace. So I get that, but including the combat in the game, the way they did, uh, I don't, I don't think that was necessary. They probably could have done that a little bit differently. Maybe have a puzzle element in there. Uh, A well integrated sense based puzzle would have been better than having a combat sequence that from my standpoint, didn't really have a lot to offer within this kind of game. It just, it didn't fit the way I would have preferred it. The one other thing I do want to talk about as it relates to navigating the game world is the fact that there were some odd sequences that happened whereby different locations would only become available after very specific actions occurred. And I get it. That's the way a lot of games are. But there were some things where you get told by characters, hey, you're going to have to talk to so-and-so at this place. And and at one point it happened two or three times where you talk to different characters and they say, hey, you're going to have to talk to so-and-so at this place. And yet that place never shows up until you hit that magical trigger that says, oh, now it's time to talk to that character at that place. So once again, I understand why games sometimes shut off progress in that way, and I can understand what they try to do with that. To me, though, there's better ways, or there are better ways to tackle that, that make the overall environments and the navigation of the different locations or possible locations feel a lot more integrated and a lot more realistic 
than not. And one of the things that frustrates me is knowing what I have to do, but not being allowed to do it. That's one of those things that does frustrate me with games sometimes. So knowing that I have to talk, go to this location and any normal person when they hear, hey, you got to talk to so-and-so at this location, would just do it. And sometimes, for whatever reason, the game would not allow you to do it. So that was another one of those things that was just a, a detrimental factor for me playing the game. So overall, how did I feel? How did I feel to play the game? First, remember, I do love full motion video games. So I'm coming into this from the perspective of somebody who really, really, really enjoys FMV titles. But this one, it was a mixed bag for me. The mystery and the story, I genuinely enjoyed. Some of the acting was was pretty high quality. Other parts of it were just comical. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of charming in a way, in, in the so bad it's good kind of territory for some of that stuff. I enjoyed it mostly. And like I said, watch Christopher Walken. I would watch that on repeat endlessly. Just, I don't even know. I've never smoked a cigar, but I got to believe the way he does it is not the right way. But you'll see what I mean if you look up the videos. The puzzles in the game were disjointed. Some instances, they were just included because a puzzle was needed or because the developers thought we need to throw a puzzle in here, so we're going to put that in. Some puzzles were not well explained or you really couldn't ascertain what the puzzle was even asking you to do without a lot of trial and error. So not really a great puzzling experience. The combat already said, really, we don't really need combat in this kind of game. And if you're going to put it in there, at least make it be good. And and this combat was not, unfortunately. And, and I do have to harp once again on including the Blue Oyster Cults Don't Fear the Reaper song. The fact that they had that as the introductory song in the game, I am totally fine with. It's a good song. I like the song. And and that's fine, but including it as the main driver for the last puzzle in the game, when there was no reason behind it, just smacks of, we need a puzzle, we're, we're going to use this licensed music that we, that we have the rights to, and it, we're going to be edgy with it, so to speak. And it just did not work. It did not work for me. So overall, what is the verdict? Did Ripper make it into the pantheon of classic gaming? Well, no. No, it did not. Was it a golden oldie? Is it something you should go back and experience? Is it going to give you that sense of nostalgia that you really want when you get... No, no, I'm sorry. It didn't didn't reach that level either. But at the same time, Ripper was not something that should be forgotten. I know that a lot of people don't even know it exists or have forgotten it existed. It still deserves its place in history, it's just mediocre. So Ripper, for me, is a mediocre mention. It is something that you do not need to play this game. If you're really interested in full motion video like I am, or you want to say that you've experienced every adventure game or point-and-click adventure game that you possibly can, you should go and play it. It's not an entirely unlikable experience. There are a lot of things that, especially nowadays, are, are going to be creature comforts you will miss, and it will be an experience that that makes you feel friction the whole way through. But there are some redeemable qualities about it that I did enjoy, specifically the story and mystery. They were legitimately interesting to me. I just don't know if the quality of the story and mystery really makes up for what it's lacking, especially when you look at it from the perspective of somebody in 2022. 
it's just, it does not hold up quite as well as a game that we would want to even older games. It's just not, it is not a true, it's just not one that belongs any higher than that. If you're interested, go for it. I cannot recommend it to the general population. was our episode on Ripper. I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed creating it and talking about it. Just a reminder, I do have some social media out there that you can reach out to me if you have ideas, if you want to talk about my opinions, or you want to share your own opinions, or you want to provide some feedback and write in and be included on the show, feel free to send me a note. I am out on Twitter at at Classic Gaming T. So the handle is at Classic Gaming T. I also have an email address, Classic Gaming Today at gmail.com. So let me know what you guys are thinking. I would love to hear from you. I would also like to say we are trying to get this available on pretty much every podcast engine that might be out there. So wherever you're listening this to this uh, podcast, if you'd like to leave a review, let me know what you think. I'm legitimately interested in knowing what you think. It's not about bolstering star counts or anything like that. I just want to know what we need to do to make this the best possible podcast it can be. We are still growing. We are trying to develop the community. This is just episode two of what will hopefully be a ton of more content to come. I am still excited. I am very excited about the prospects of where this could eventually end up and how we can grow it. We can't do that without everybody everybody jumping in and being part of the community that we're trying to build. I am excited. I hope you all are excited as well. So next episode will be coming in around a week-ish, still trying to work out the timing of that. So please bear with me as we work through the, the full timing of releases moving forward. We are going to be talking about a game that I actually never played when I was younger, but was recommended by a listener out on Twitter. And we're going to look at the Lost Vikings, which was released on a bunch of different platforms. I am going to play the Super Nintendo version of the game because I believe that was the the base version of Lost Vikings. I'll have to take a look at that. But I am going to play Lost Vikings for the next episode. And then we will come forward and we'll come together and talk about it in around a week or so. So I hope everybody had a great time. I enjoyed talking with all of you. Let me know what you're thinking. And remember, sometimes the gaming experience of the past are just as good, if not better, than today's gaming experiences. Have a great day, night, or whenever you're listening to this. And goodbye, everyone. <laughs>